Yo, what's going on, guys? How you doing, Britt? I'm doing really good. I am. Uh, my mom's visiting. I'm getting my what my breast augmentation tomorrow, so I'm kind of nervous. Like it's like I am graduating. It's like, <laughs> like graduating. I'm so excited, but I'm at the same time super nervous. My mom's here right now. Um, she'll be taking care of me for the weekend, and then I'll be uh, taken care of by friends in Avon Lake. So very nice. You're gonna be you're gonna be good hands. Good hands, guys. We have a really fucking special guest. And I wish you could have seen his face when Brit, Brit announced her uh, breast off. <laughs> we guys, we have, oh my God, that's awesome. No, we have fucking three-time 212 Olympian, John motherfucking Jewett on oh the podcast God. right now. John, say hi to the people. Hello, the people. Yeah, thanks uh, for having me. Definitely wasn't expecting like breast augmentation to be like the first topic that dropped but what i coach a lot of females and that's always like john when should i be scheduling my breast dog so it's not like out of my uh completely out of my my box i operate with them but anyway yeah, <laughs> yeah appreciate y'all having me on glad to be here what's cool is that like i totally know that you would understand this whole thing like you're like i i totally the the breast augmentation it is random but at the same time it's it feels like it's a rite of passage it's like everybody's doing it so like you know we got to do it I'm just kidding no I am I'm excited about it and that's why I kind of like this I'm glad you, so that's so you're not like post-show like yeah I competed yesterday I'm doing my breast dog tomorrow I have people do that that was Ashley I just got called out by John Ashley yeah three days three days post-show post-show bro yeah so you had a great read well some people just aren't in the good spot to do it right like they're like i'll, I'll do it when i'm lean like i won't have all this fat gain but then you like sit around with your breast dog and you eat and it's like this could be a, a bad time to have a, a good recovery experience but um yeah i think i did actually it's different though hey, yeah she really I'm, I'm built different that's right yeah <laughs> yeah i, I <laughs> I uh, did it at a decent time, actually, like my coach and I were pushing a growth phase and now we're in a little like maintenance phase coming down um, and health phase. So now is like probably a good time to go ahead and do that if I'm going to do it. And we'll do one more growth phase after this and then I'll finally be able to uh, do a contest prep. I've been away from the stage, John. It'll be like four years by the time I compete again because I've been switching from bikini to figure. So it's been a, it's been, yeah, a long time of just this. So I'm ready to, I'm ready to go. Congrats to you to like sit out and do what you need to. So many people like just rush the stage so much and they just don't, don't improve. It's like it's the fastest way to get to your, your outcome. And and yeah. for a lot of people, that's it. Like sitting out to actually improve and put size on. Yeah. I mean, put breasts I, on, you know, <laughs> I mean, like <laughs> I, knew, I also, you know, wanted to make sure I did it like I mean, there's no right way, but there is a safer way, especially yeah. for women. It's, you know, when I was starting to switch, I was completely natural. I mean, like even in bikini, I didn't even take, I was stupid. And I didn't even take like, I didn't even take fucking EAAs and shit. Like I was super, like, I'm not taking anything. And then when I got with my coach, he was like, you actually look like you'd be suited more for figure, even this natural, like the way that you're doing things. So, you know, if you're wanting to dip into that, like, you know, more than happy to show you the correct way and the safest way to do that. So we've basically been titrating that up, like for the entire four years, getting me comfortable with it and things like that. And now I feel like, like I'm actually bodybuilding. It's crazy. Um, and that process of learning, it takes some time. 
Um, especially when you're switching divisions, you don't know what to expect, how much mass you have to put on. And I definitely want to go into win. Um, and so that's, that's why it's been taking so long. Cause I won't, I refuse to come back and I don't look better than what I did. And there's no way that I don't at this point. So. Absolutely. John, I would love to know a little bit more about you and your background when it comes to like, how did you get into coaching? How did you get into bodybuilding? And then we can kind of go into our topic of discussion today. Yeah, I was not to go way back, but I mean, the first I was ever exposed to bodybuilding, I was around five or six years old. My, uh, we lived in a duplex in our, my, our, my neighbor, he, he was in a bodybuilding. He didn't compete, but he had like stacks of flex magazines. So as a kid, I like looked through these magazines and see these like hyper masculine guys. And of course, like I was a kid of the nineties. So it was all like muscle everywhere, like Arnold Stallone, Van Damme. Like that's, those are all the like, great action movies you would see or great action movies, right? Quote unquote. Um, and so muscle was always around bodybuilding kind of always was in mind. Uh, so always had a, a kind of a background in athletics, but I, once I got into like middle school and you start getting around weights, uh, I just had like, I was just naturally a little stronger than everyone kind of had a, a predisposition to that. And finally got into high school and realized that there was actually something you can compete in that was just lifting weights, which was perfect because I wasn't awesome at sports. I was okay. Uh, but I was really good at, really good at lifting. So got into powerlifting and, but with the idea, I was like, man, if I get really strong, I'm going to look really big and jacked, like what I used to see in the magazines. And it didn't quite work out that way. Like people would always guess I was like 20 or 30 pounds lighter than I actually was, which is like a little demoralizing. Um, but anyway, I, I was pretty successful in powerlifting. I'd set some like world records in my like age groups and weight classes and kind of got over that and wanted to actually look like I really was as strong as I was. So, um, kind of made the switch into bodybuilding. It had always been on my mind. And that was right when I was getting out of uh, college, going into my, my master's degree. And that's when it really took off kind of going in, having no idea what the potential could really be and going show by show, just hoping you're not last place and you fit in, then you just start, start winning and you keep moving up the the ranks from there. And, and along that way, bodybuilding is the new thing about it is like, you're not like in high school, you're not immersed into having like all these coaches, right? It's uh, pretty much a, a solo endeavor. So you have to come your own coach in all these different avenues and learn everything. Um, and so through that learning process, is you start getting people's, they see your results and they ask you like, well, what are you doing? How is that working? I would be the one that would answer all these questions for people around my grade. They terrible person at the time to think back, like to get advice, like ask the other high school kid how to like build muscle. Um, but either way, I really enjoyed answering questions and helping people and seeing like the light bulbs go off for, for everyone that I was helping. So uh, eventually I had my first client and I was in college. I had never even competed in bodybuilding. It was a friend of mine that worked at GNC, Josh Scorpio. And he's like, I, I was just the nerd that just knew a lot of information. I knew the idea around it. He's like, will you prep me? I was like, man, I've never done this before. Like, I, I can't promise anything. Um, no charge at all. But I, I love, love to be a part. And 
I, I prepped him for his first show and that's how it kind of just in, increased coaching from there. Like people would just keep coming and kind of word of mouth happened. So kind of coaching organically happened, but it was more so from, I guess, me being a nerd, trying to figure out my own process and getting better at that. And then people want help. And here I am coaching. <laughs> I have a couple questions for you. Yeah. Okay. So one, were you a coach before you started competing? And how old were you when you transitioned into bodybuilding? See, I was uh, roughly 25 or 26 when I switched from, from powerlifting over to, over to bodybuilding. Yeah. And a lot of people would think that that's so late, but you were, you were mentally, I think, prepared for it, especially since you had already, well, I hope you were mentally prepared for it. I don't know, but especially since you had that background in powerlifting, which usually translates well, you know, as a base for a lot of people, um, as they transition into bodybuilding and actually living that lifestyle. Cause it's kind of like, it's kind of like a preliminary in a lot of ways in terms of the training. Um, and when you bodybuild, you just, it gets more intense, right? Like you have the diet and then you train a lot differently, a little bit more intense, a lot more intense. Um, so I'm sure that that kind of helped you transition, but a lot of people would look at 25, 26 and be like, that's so late, but that's when I started, like, that's when I started getting serious and I knew I had to be mentally prepared for it. My mom's actually a figure competitor or uh, she was. And so she told me to finish school and I finished my master's and then I started uh, getting into competing. Do you think that helped you? The school part or the powerlifting part? Both of them. Either one. Um, <laughs> The, uh, yes, it's, I wish I had my twin that just didn't go through powerlifting, but, uh, I always had, was like really, um, interested in the nutrition aspect and the meticulous side of it. So I was the powerlifter that already had like an Excel sheet with his diet laid out and, and ate like a bodybuilder. So that part was a little bit easier of a transition, but don't get me wrong. Powerlifting, it's not nearly as, uh, dietary meticulous needed as, as, uh, you know, a bodybuilder, but, um, I definitely like powerlifting definitely brought out a lot of the intensity effort that was needed. Like I could grind weights, um, but even young, like being in athletics. And that's what I find the people I coach that had like an athletic background, like those people know how to work at a really high effort level. And so I had that from powerlifting, which going into bodybuilding, that wasn't going to be an issue, making sure I could have like plenty of high effort sets or even the, the effort side outside of the gym. It was really, I needed someone to be able to pull me back. So there was like the downside to it as well. Uh, cause I was, would could do more than what I what I knew I should be doing. So, but absolutely the, the school along the way helped too. Yeah. yeah. And then, uh, were you, did you coach your first athlete on stage before you competed or were you already competing? Yeah, I, I coached him before I had actually competed. I think it was, uh, I think one year before I actually got on stage and competed. So headed that direction, but hadn't quite got there yet. That's awesome. That is awesome. Did you, when uh, you first stepped on stage, did you compete in like, you know, a like light heavyweight or did you do like classic physique first? Like what was your kind of leading up to obviously 212? Yeah, I, I'm old. So there wasn't classic physique yet. And there was uh, only, only bodybuilding. And it was in this in San Antonio, that's where I'm at, Texas. There was only like the main show we've had since the eighties is the 
Lackland Classic. It's on an Air Force base. So there was only uh, three weight classes. Mm-hmm. So light, heavyweight, middleweight, and heavyweight. So I was a middleweight. So I was right around 180 pounds, probably could have been leaner. And uh, coached myself into the show. Sh- coached myself for the first three years in- into those shows. So, um, But I ended up uh, winning the the novice the open the novice overall and i i missed the open overall to the the heavyweight which he was a huge guy so <laughs> he was probably 50 pounds heavier than me what is the like you you still coach yourself currently and uh yes uh how, what is the hardest part about coaching yourself versus uh, have you have you been coached by someone else or I'm not- I, no i have i have actually i before I ever even competed, I worked with Shelby Starnes for a year. Okay. And uh, that's like was my middle period between powerlifting and bodybuilding. I honestly just wanted to bulk up and cut down. It wasn't even to compete. Um, then coached myself for three years. Then I worked with Matt Jansen for three years. Uh, then I had about a year of kind of by my, myself again. Then uh, Andrew Vu for another year. Then the past about two years has just been me again. So, um, it makes me so happy to know who these people are. Yeah. Like they're actually like reputable coaches that we, <laughs> we know, like, but what is the hardest part about coaching yourself versus when you have a coach to tell you what to do? Yeah. Like, it's your level. your level. You're at a very high level. So yeah, it's, it's nice to have, to be able to turn off the, all the thinking, because mm-hmm. it's easy for me to like, I am a thinker and it's easy to overthink your own decisions a lot. So you can see yourself and, you know, I'm prep you. It's, it can be quite emotional endeavor. And uh, one look in the mirror, it's like, oh my gosh, I look softer than I did. And I should, I shouldn't have uh, raised food or did this refeed or, you know, you start questioning your own decisions when it's a client, you, you can make a call and you can just go about your day and not have to think about it again. Like you can trust your process. So I think that was a big part of it of having to be able to just truly trust your decisions and turn it off. And just know like that, that first call you made is ex- accept the one, just let it ride. Mm-hmm. So I had to just pretty much treat myself like I am my own client. Like you take your pictures, you send them to yourself. And sometimes you just walk away mm. and think on it and then come back to it because you get up first in the morning and look at yourself and take your picks. And you're like, Oh, this isn't right. But then all the logic needs to kick in a little bit before you make it, make a call. So um, it was just taking time to, to be able to remove yourself emotionally, which some people, I don't know if they have that personality trait in them. Um, I I'm not as emotionally driven person. I'm not a sociopath. No judgment, <laughs> but I, I I can disconnect it a little bit to where uh, make a bit more logical thought process. So that's uh for sure been the bigger challenge, and it's nice just to have a team, you know, be able to bounce ideas off and and have that collaboration with people. Um, it, it you know what you do together can be more enjoyable than doing something on your own. So I I sometimes miss that about having having a coach, uh, feeling like more of a, a part of something, but I uh, just have to remember as an individual, you kind of are your own team. So, you know, if you're not your, on your coach's team, like they're really on your team, if you think about it and all your family and friends that are supporting you as well. Yeah. That component of being like emotionally poised and having control over your data and making decisions based on your data and how you look versus like how you feel it's, 
something that I think a lot of people don't understand. That's what coaches do all the time. Like, and so to do it with yourself, it's kind of hard. Like I've tried to coach myself and I didn't last like more than two months. I was like, wow, fuck this. Like I'm going to have somebody make these decisions for me because I'm always going to be super hard on myself. Um, and I'm always going to want to push more as a person. Uh, and that's just who I am. So I need somebody, I need a coach that's going to keep me level-headed and make sure that I don't get too emotional, even as I execute my protocol. Right. So even as a coach, like that's hard for me personally. Mm-hmm. My first prep, like coaching myself, I coming from my background athletics, like I buried myself. Like I remember like usually at university, you have to park like really far away. So I'm like walking, I'm halfway there. I just stop. And like, I feel like, man, I could just sit down here. Should I go back to my car or keep going? Like the fatigue was so high. And I wonder like, why am I still not getting leaner? It's like, well, I'll just bury myself more. And so it was always like push, push, push. I didn't have the, the knowledge then of like the benefit of pulling back. Um, but I think what's, I, I like logic. So math really helped along the way. So I look at bodybuilding, a lot of like math of like giving yourself enough time. And that was a big one of not having to get to where you're having to rush fat loss off and bury yourself in a hole. So it was getting for me, like getting really good at fatigue management, finding the least burdensome and easiest way to create deficits to manage that fatigue and still get to that stage outcome. And that's when I've gotten my, my best conditions actually been my, my easiest preps. Um, even with coaches that I worked with in the past, I've done the like two hours of Stairmaster and just get buried. And it's like, I, I wasn't stage ready. Um, yeah. There was, there was gaps missing that need to be evaluated for fatigue management. And that's what I, what I can monitor really well in myself on the day to day. And I've had better, better outcomes since doing it. Absolutely. That's incredible. That really is. Um, we're going to get into our topic of discussion today about like male PED periodization, um, both in an off season and contest prep setting. Cause a lot of like this newer generation sometimes goes off of the older generation of like kind of blasting straight out of the gates and not really understanding kind of like the art of titration. And with your J3 university, you have done such an amazing job educating not only people who maybe have the emotional capacity to coach themselves, but also newer coaches when it comes to kind of the the safer PED usage model. So when it comes to starting a cycle what should maybe a first cycle design look like for a male? And then how does one go about maybe titrating gear up to fit those needs of that individual? Yeah, it's been a quite a progressive time over these past couple of years. Cause I was introduced into this whole world just through like the guy in the gym and like you, what your buddy say and the, the, what was out there in the forum. So the first cycle was always like, you take 500 milligrams of testosterone. That was just where you start. Usually you have some type of estrogen blocker just already present because you're going to need it because you're going to take this much testosterone. Then you you take this for 12 weeks, which I don't know why that number is there. It's just 12 <laughs> weeks is what you do. Uh, and then you have to do a PCT. That was kind of like the standard protocol. But when you start asking questions, I didn't then. I, I didn't, I just, I didn't know enough to even be able to ask questions. Um, it just, uh, which was ignorant on my part and naive, um, especially for looking back at how thoughtful I was in a lot of other areas. But um, going about it that way, 
it creates a lot of problems kind of out the gate with using high dosages, especially for a first time user, because you can't really evaluate what your own individual response to side effects will be and to control them well. So with as far as like dosing goes in for beginner, um, what I usually typically suggest is starting closer to a TRT dosage just so you're able to really evaluate where you're currently at and then progress up from there. We're basically trying to use as little as needed to get the most growth before you need to escalate beyond that. So a, a lot of guys that I would, that I work with starting at the 500 milligram mark, it, it, uh, most of them will have some type of estrogen related issues and you don't know where that will be for someone. And although estrogen is a, is a beneficial hormone, then we're having to use another drug to combat it. So the idea is that we should probably just, why don't we start low in testosterone and move it up to find that point prior to the need of an AI. And I guess what's the issue with using AI? It's just, there's not really a, a therapeutic benefit around it. And there's other drugs in place, other steroids created that don't aromatize that we could just use to drive the same anabolism without having an AI. So there's been a lot of people that have brought this thought in into um, play, like uh, Victor Black, Broderick Chavez. Uh, these are some of the more thinking um, bodybuilders, and I've kind of taken this and been able to implement it at a high level to show how it how it actually works. But yeah, so for for beginners starting out, um, 200 milligrams of testosterone is usually a, a good starting point. And for, for many people, that's going to take you super physiological. And before you do that, I would say like get some standardized lab work to assess your own hormones first. So you see what you're currently at and then where you go to, uh, cause where, what does that 200 milligrams actually do for you? For many people, it will take them up to the high norm level or, or super physiological, Real TRT is like 100 milligrams. It's not what a lot of these clinics are doing, um, where it's two, 300 milligrams. Those are already cycles. So considering 100 milligrams is usually TRT, we're already doing double that. So it's it's good rational that that's going to do something for this individual. Um, and, and why start at that level? Because you will, you will definitely see progress. Also, you're going to be able to have a better evaluation of how you handle estradiol your health detriment effects to your labs and also even DHT related side effects. Um, so you milk that out for as much as you can get, right? And how long, uh, what, 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 what would be the rationale to stop? Uh, you keep going at T near TRT dosages. There's really not going to be any detriment to your labs. Um, you're, you're not going to run into many, many issues at all. So it's almost, this could be, a very long time. This could be a lifetime usage dosage that you're running here, but at some point your, your results are going to start petering out. Performance will start dropping and say, like, okay, what's the next step is you incrementally increase testosterone. So I usually recommend like 50 milligram increments and not sooner than every four weeks. So you can actually see that come to full fruition because of half-lifes and how this would build up in the system. So you just keep moving up testosterone as needed for anabolism. And at, at some point you're going to hit the wall of, I might need a little bit more mm -hmm. anabolism for 
without another aromatization. Like you might need the AI before so. So that's uh, kind of how initially how that might go. And, and that might last for like a year. Not needing to do a PCT because why would you do a PCT? Um, I, I not a huge fan. Um, I think for fertility purposes, you'd be better off with using like HCG during the cycle. Um, but the idea to come off to restore fertility or restore your own production, I guess what's the end game there? Because usually you're going to go right back on and that repeated bouts causes oxidative stress to the testes. So eventually you're going to decline your own production of testosterone. So it's kind of the in inevitable that you'll have to be on TRT anyway. So I don't really justify using PCTs in the bodybuilding endeavor for fertility purposes. I understand have, have, have get, get pregnant, have your baby. But then if, if you're going to continue, it's big sense to go back to testosterone. That's at least a little bit of the framework for like a first time introductory use. I guess I'll stop there and see. <laughs> no, that was great. You were on a that roll. Was I was great. like, no, that was that, that, that was a, a very clear and concise answer. Um, I think that a lot of people really overthink, especially the first cycle. Um, they, especially men will kind of take one number or see what all their bros are doing and kind of do that. Um, not thinking about how you can des design the cycle um, and how we are going to make the decisions to continue to titrate up in the future and when we would make those decisions in the first place. But for someone like yourself, like who might be a little bit more advanced, where do you start making decisions for your PED use in titration? Um, what are you thinking about when you make the decisions for yourself or for somebody who is a little bit more advanced? Yeah, <clears throat> I mean, I guess the, the the rest of the framework, just just to understand there is once you reach a point for testosterone that you would need an AI from there, the, the next most benign drug that we could add in to create amylism is is probably some form of dht derivative like master and primal and these don't aromatize so you're basically you're creating that testosterone with aromatase inhibitor what that looks like in 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 the body is like using master on or primavolin so rather than having high testosterone ai let's just have a moderate testosterone of what you can handle then bring in the DHT derivative from there up to that total milligram input that you need to grow. And that's really where I see a lot of dogma in bodybuilding is that each drug is made out to be something unique. Um, Masteron makes you hard. Trimbalone gets you lean and, and it creates God effects uh, or, you know, halitestin <laughs> makes you hard, right? Like each thing does one thing. And for our goals in bodybuilding, it's just muscle tissue accretion. And there was a, we have some studies, one human study and one, one in surrogates and rodents where they compare seven different steroids on muscle accretion. And across these seven different steroids, they, they relatively built muscle tissue about the same. Um, the other study in humans was comparing 300 megs of testosterone and angelone only for six weeks, but they relatively had the same changes in muscle mass as well. So based on evidence, we can say 
on a per milligram basis, all these drugs, all the steroids build muscle tissue at the, about the same rate. So one drug's not going to build one more than the other. So your primo is not building muscle faster than your testosterone or, or vice versa. So if you understand that point, then it simply comes down to cycle design is what is the total milligram amount that you need with the most benign side effects that we can create. And the side effect piece is really guiding our drug choices. So testosterone now is up to what you can tolerate without an AI. And then we're going to fill in the rest of the milligram total with a benign drug that doesn't aromatize because that's part of the need. And preambol and amasteron are, are good choices because the 19 nor derivatives like nandrolone and trimbolone potentially have greater effects for neurotoxicity. And then there's some other compounds that we could, we could even discuss that have some other other issues like boldenone is a popular one. There's evidence to say that might have increases in renal toxicity and it's never been human approved. It's a, a veterinary drug. So just trying to create drug choices that would be the least benign that we've been able to use in humans and have data, safety data on them. Uh, there's also some orals that we could utilize and these would, I consider phase, phase dependent drugs. So sorry to go back to your, your question here, cause I wanted to put that piece in for myself or, or a client that's experienced. Cause usually if you're coaching, it's someone that's coming to you. Usually they've already taken stuff. It's rare. I get a client that like, yep, I've been natural for three years. I've done everything right. And now I'm <laughs> going to be starting my first cycle. That's it's never the case. Usually it's guy that they've done all kinds of different stuff. And now here they are at your doorstep. Right. Mm -hmm. So that assessment process, when someone comes to the, the door needs to look like what, what is your level at? How long you've been training for? What was the previous dosage and cycle that you ran? And I can kind of look through that, look at what the total milligram amount was, take a note, then also look through every other variable that they're implementing and try to pick that apart. So can I find like errors in nutrition in their lifestyle, stress management, their sleep, their training? Is, is there a variable that I can improve on? to justify bringing down that milligram amount to where they can still see that effect. Mm -hmm. And if so, that's where I might be starting. Um, there's the rare individuals where they've, they've maxed out every variable, like they're doing everything perfect. That is the milligram amount, whatever it may be, 2000 milligrams per week. That's what makes them grow. It is what it is. That's where they're at. For a lot of people that are coming in that I work with, there's a lot of areas that I can, I can improve on. There's also areas where you can take these old cycle designs that they're running a bunch of tests and DECA and Equipoise, and we could make that stack design grow the same, but less benign and be able to extend out those growth phases because there won't be running into the roadblocks of health derangement, blood pressure, killing appetite. So now we could have just more productive cycles without the health detriments and be able to have those for longer courses. So that's some of the assessment that I would first look at. Um, and then it's the question might be, well, how much do you bring someone down from? And it, there's, there's no science to it. It's uh, just kind of through an experience thing of how much I, I, I would. Um, I'll stop there. That's like the assessment for a client. I can get into how I escalate my own stuff, but um, yeah, yeah. Anything y'all want to interject there? Yeah. Yeah. So what, what are you looking for when it's like, yes, like now it's time to increase dosage. And I don't just mean to find the peak dosage. I mean, like 
you're working with someone, you know, they're running, let's just say like 300 tests and like 100 Prima Bolin. And you're like, I think we can do a little bit more. Like, what are you looking for from a biofeedback standpoint to like, yeah, I'm going to increase, you know, your Prima Bolin. Yeah. It's a tough one because, and there's coaches out there that it doesn't matter who you walk in the door, what level experience you're at. Like you're getting like the two, three gram per week protocol and they will see rapid growth. And those are the clients you see like mutate that also have the genetic um, propensity to do so. Um, it's a, uh, it's a tough one pressure on coaches, right? Like you need someone to be able to buy in and realize the long-term goals that, Hey, I started bodybuilding when I was 26, I'm 36 now and I'm still improving. So this is bodybuilding over the next 10 plus years for some people, 15 plus years. So we need to think beyond like that, even 16 weeks of going to your show, you know? And so that's why we're not just starting everyone on the two, three gram protocol. So we look good as coaches. Uh, we need, we have a, an ethical moral compass that needs to take place and take care of people's health. This is their lives. Um, so it's, it's serious and it's way beyond the scope of us, of whoever we are, um, whether you're, uh, you're not, we're not doctors, even doctors, they're not supposed to be doing stuff like that. So who is, um, so it's beyond everyone's scope. So it's a real great area we operate in, but still we should have, you know, basic ethics and thought process to what this might do to someone long-term with that being said. <laughs> so yeah, we, we try to milk the most for what we can. However, uh, there's a rate that we do need to progress at because we're bodybuilding and, and ultimately what I'm doing is to win shows and be the best that I can. Secondarily, I try to not be stupid and have a safe, safer way and logical way to do it. And it, it just happens to lend itself to be safer, but results are first. I would take a more aggressive approach. You know, if that's, I'm trying to get to Olympia, that's what we do. And my clients that come to me are the same. So I, I want to progress them at the rate too. That's within their goals and their risk profile. So what does that look like? <laughs> and uh, that's uh, the art of coaching, right? So one we're seeing for one gym performance is starting to slow. I, I basically pretty much want someone a, a constant upward tick of gym performance. I think that's pretty reasonable to ask for um, and with drugs in place. So if for any reason we're seeing that start to slow down, first to evaluate training in general. Are you fully recovering? Like, yeah, John, I feel great all the time. I could train every day. Like, okay, you probably need to train harder or train, train more, more volume. That might be the input that needs to happen. We're also look at body weight. Is body weight trending upward along with gym performance? And then we might see gym performance is increasing and body weight's not like, okay, put more food in. That's probably what needs to happen. We put more food in. And at some point we don't see gym performance increase and they just start to get fat. And they're also training enough. What do we have to do? Well, well, you're, well welcome. You're now more advanced. <laughs> the gains will come slow. So those are, those are the three items of like, well, we have drugs to as a lever to pull. So we pull that lever. So that's why I say when you're, when your gym performance is slowing, you add food in, you only see someone get a little bit softer. That's when it's time to increase drugs. Um, and you can kind of gauge that cycle by cycle as well. 
So, and see what the growth was off that previous one. So if I had someone that say we're using 500 milligrams per week, that was their peak dosage. They grew pretty well towards the end. Maybe we saw that taper off. And usually we're having to pull back on cycle in off season because a lot of times people get too fat, hunger drops off, appetite, or it could be just training volume related. They're just physically spent from high, high uh, accumulating volumes. Those are reasons to pull back to like a holding or maintenance phase at that time we pull back gear. Right. Um, and then we can evaluate and say like, all right, we, this is how the results looked next time we should move that peak dosage up. There's not a, there's not a correct amount to move it up by. Um, you, you could justify a 20%, 30% increase as, as a number that might be within reason. Again, there's no, there's no standard. I'm going to quote it on that or something, but, um, <laughs> That, that in general would be kind of the framework of moving someone up. I think we look back to how the previous cycles used to go. It was like week one, thousand milligrams of whatever. And what that does is your water weight jumps up that first two couple of weeks. You feel full, right? But also blood pressure's high, hearts, hard skin, hard, pushed harder. Um, it's more like accumulation of like, oxidative stress, inflammation in the body. And let me ask you like week one of your growth phase, do you need a thousand milligrams to grow? Same question would be week one of, of off season. Do you need to take 10 sets of squats to now 20 sets? Do you need to go from 3000 calories to 5,000 calories? No, it should still be incremental to manage fatigue. The same thing with gear. Then as you slowly incrementally increase kind of as you need. So the, the peak dosage should be based um, around that and trying to get there. uh, I would say within like 30% of the time you're going to be on for. So if you're going to be on for 20 ish weeks, relatively, then, you know, within that first seven to eight weeks, you could hit your peak dosage. And there is no studies on this. It's a purely what I've was introduced actually was through, through Broderick and the idea and rationale behind that made a lot of logical sense. Um, I can only anecdotally speak from my, my clients and myself that it, it does seem to manage health markers more and uh, give, give a, a better rationale around that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, for sure. Like I hear a lot of um, as needed, right? Like we do things as needed if we need to um, just to get the most out of, whatever cycle that we're going to do in terms of like, I I hear a lot in contest prep. So I'm going to switch gears here. I hear a lot in contest prep. Um, you know, when you're X weeks out, we're going to add this in, Mm. um, do you ever, do you ever pre-program, uh, PED use for contest prep specifically, or do you do the as needed thing? Uh, like you're talking about here right now. Well, it's, it's a slightly a bit of both, right? So the, Going into a prep, you're going to have some information from off season of what that person, what the input that was required to build muscle. And it is way easier to maintain muscle. Okay. So that's, I'm going to frame this out for prep and surely. So your dosage load should be very, very low. Same with everything. Like the amount of food you need is low. Uh, the training amount you need is low. Like we should be, have a low PD amount to hold muscle. Now, when you move into a calorie deficit, there's going to be a greater demand of protein breakdown. You're going to have potentially easier time to lose muscle. So that's when demand for, or need 
for higher amounts of PEDs would be in place. Now, I, I find that it is much easier to maintain muscle on prep than it is to grow because I've had guys on, on PEDs and I am drilling them to get down. And sometimes we don't even see body weight move or they're still holding muscle, like training performance. It's incredible. So the amount of drug you need for prep to hold on to tissue it is much less than what you need for off season. So you should have some numbers here that you've kind of come up with like off season. This person was up to a thousand milligrams. I can see a maintain on 300 milligrams. So somewhere in the middle there is going to be a, a reasonable dose on prep to maintain that tissue. Um, where that is, is kind of what we go off of need, right? So we have an idea. We have a tentative plan of total milligram needs. So that might be six, 700 milligrams for that person to maintain. But along the way, what are we evaluating to see what they do need? I, I will I will somewhat pre-program up to like 50% of that mark and then go from there, right? So I'm on, on prep. Are they losing body fat at the right? Are they holding training performance? If they're checking those boxes, cool. That's enough PED present. If we're starting to see training performance have a detriment, we're starting to see, see recovery needs increase. They're getting more fatigued. That could be the checkbox for, all right, let's implement more PEDs. As far as the later stages of PrEP, the phase-dependent drugs that usually come, come in place, a lot of the orals, and this is like male or female apart, like the last drugs in PrEP, all of a sudden we, we name them hardeners. And it, it really convolutes what each drug really is doing. And the, the simple thing I mentioned earlier is like all steroids, the main purpose is to uh, accrue muscle tissue or prevent muscle tissue breakdown. Like, remember that, like that should guide every choice. So even for your orals, like that's the main purpose of it. But the idea was that there, you know, some of these orals should bring about a aesthetic change, male or female, right? And I tried to find this out and, and seek it out. I've, I've done preps with every single oral at once. Right. And I've done preps using them individually over the past, over 2021. I competed like five times. So I used one oral for each show. It was trying to see out this. Does it actually bring a, like a change in the aesthetic look? Does it make you hard? And there's not one single one that, that changed that it was simply like, how, what was my body fat level at? Cause you have to ask at the end of prep, well, how does a steroid make you hard? And it's either, it's going to make you lose fat or it's going to modulate water. Like that's how you're going to get hard is, is a steroid, a great fat loss drug. It's not, it's not what I would pick. Like I would pick like clenbuterol or growth hormone. Like those would be like good fat loss drugs, not a steroid. So yes, they help aid fat loss. Yes. But that's not their, their main role. How, does it modulate water? Well, gosh, most of them actually increase water retention and, or some of them like testosterone might increase estrogen. That might be a, a pathway, right? So you're increasing Anivar, halotestin. It could offset estrogen and that might have an influence on water retention potentially. I'm going to get back to that piece because there's a, that's a mess for females and males. The other one would be, it could affect cortisol. 
And that's a big issue on prep, right? We, we are in a constant state of accumulating fatigue and cortisol. So yes, that does have an impact on cortisol. Steroids do. However, that's not, we should solve the root issue, which is training volume management, sleep management, having, you know, refeed days, everything we could do to ease the burden of prep. That's going to be the biggest thing. When you go into peak week, it should be like a deload week, bringing food up. You're going to see people get tartar, drop off water. That's the main role we should have. So steroids shouldn't be the job for that. But going back to that last point about estrogen and estrogen doesn't cause water retention. It is one of the inputs that drives up aldosterone. Same, same way that steroids work, same ways that growth hormones works is it increases aldosterone levels. Aldosterone increases sodium retention and that's water follows sodium and you retain water. So if we're, if we're modulating that system in any way, that might have an input. Um, but estrogen is merely an input in that. So if we're controlling our stack design with how much testosterone we're using, we can modulate how much input is going to affect water retention. So we're not going to have issues like guys using a thousand milligrams of testosterone on prep and driving that much water retention from high testosterone and high estrogen. We can modulate it with just our stack design, but using an oral won't be the purpose behind modulating it. And the main thing that I, that I suggest like is using an ARB on prep, address the root issue. Like if, if your drugs are increasing aldosterone, if estradiol could be increasing as well, put in an angiotensin receptor blocker, which could modulate estrogen. I mean, sorry, modulate aldosterone and angiotensin. And that could already resolve some of any of those water issues that might be present before you even hit peak week. So we hit peak week. We've already figured out all the water stuff. What's left is fat. So should steroids be hardeners? Absolutely not. They don't, that's not their role. Don't even call them that. Now, when do they have an application? Orals do, they do absolutely. Um, is you need something to uphold training performance and muscle fast. And you're in the later stages of prep. That's where orals shine in my opinion. So you're seeing training performance you hit that wall the last few weeks of prep, put something in place that could be acting fast because an injectable, it's going to take a few weeks to rise, get in serum. So that's that's when your orals would really shine, like Anavar or Winstrol, like just pick pick the flavor. Try each one if you like, see which one you get along best with. Uh, in my opinion, like the most benign and we've seen research a lot is uh, Anavar and off my journey of using one oral at a time for all the shows I did, that was the one that had, at least for myself, the biggest input in, uh, in training performance. And uh, one of the, the most, a little bit less benign on, on labs than some of the other orals that are around. Um, but that was a lot of me talking on that. Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, it's heavy information and it's good information out there. Um, when it comes to peak week, do you tend to, maybe I guess before peak week, do you tend to maybe lower the testosterone dosage to kind of anticipate possible water retention in all athletes? Or is it just kind of like, a, it depends on like their pictures and stuff like that. Like what's your thought process with that? Yeah, of course it, it depends. Right. And we wouldn't have a nuanced podcast about this if, if that's all I could say. So it, it, uh, ideally the ideal situation of someone moving into a show is that you can get them ready 
about two weeks early. And so you have the ability to really assess is all the fat pulled off. Mm-hmm. Um, and usually if it is water related, it's won't feel like rubbery fat. It'll feel like squishy and that might be water related. Um, hopefully off of like your holding phases and other phases, you've been able to assess picks and see it potentially they might be a little softer in areas. It's really hard to say off, off pictures. A lot of times it's, it's, assume it's fat until you can rule otherwise. Uh, because if you get someone peeled, like they're not going to be a lot of water around fat cells either way. Now I, I will say, yes, we can control the amount of aromatization of estrogen. We won't need AI like estrogen's beneficial for, you know, hypertrophy, also glycogen loading, but also like if you just have a high drug load, like you still could retain some water from it. And if someone is two weeks out and they still don't have quite that hard, crisp look, it's reasonable to bring testosterone down. And depending on what ester you're using, you can reduce it like seven, seven days out or just stop it. And around that time is also when you're going to be having food go up to and deloading. So the need decreases, right? You're going to have a greater ability to retain tissue when food is high. So you won't need all the drug present. Now that's the balance to strike there because what that though testosterone's doing is holding some water intramuscular, but it might be holding a little bit of water other places. So you might have a little, have to sacrifice a little bit of fullness to have that level of conditioning that comes in but it is person dependent because I've had people that have testosterone in place and never change it. They have growth through in place, never change it. And they just look hard as nails. Well, leave it in, you know, don't have to drop it at, at X days out. But if you have that individual that does have that response, that's when you want to remove it. Cause that's going to bring that, that much better a physique to stage. And, and that level of conditioning is going to outweigh any loss of fullness that they, they might've had. So yeah, there's not of a, you always must pull it but it, it will be person dependent. That's the evaluation that needs to happen. But if, if you look hard as nails and great, just leave it in. Yeah. You don't need to need to drop it out. You would you consider um, replacing androgen load with like a DHT or something? If you remove testosterone in a contest prep setting. So um, into peak week, I, I wouldn't. Because it just, there, there should be offset of like increasing food, I think is enough to retain that tissue there. Mm-hmm. So that wouldn't be the case. Now, if I want to do it earlier, yeah. And we're still dieting hard. Mm-hmm. I would, but I feel like by working someone off season and, and incrementally escalating them up should have a pretty good gauge to not need to pull down testosterone, at least earlier on in prep. It's still something that might need to happen like two weeks out. Um, I guess in that instance, if there are two weeks out, you're like, all right, I think this might be uh, like water driven. And I already have like the ARB in place. And at, at some load, it won't matter if you're taking an ARB. Like there's so much input for water retention mm-hmm. that that not even that's going to make a difference. It's, it, it's a nice idea and it does help it manages health, but um, you might need more. So that's when you could bring it down. If they're still dieting. Yeah, you could raise up probably is when the oral would come in because you'd be at that two, three week out mark. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One, one other thing to bring up too, is like, we talk a lot about like androgens um, that 
we can drive a lot of this process too with also using multiple pathways to try to create hypertrophy and, and fat loss. And, and this goes off season um, or in, in prep, and especially for females as well. It's it's more of the, the, the pertinent thing to talk about because the greatest risk for females is virilization, the masculinizing side effects. It's not all the organ health arrangements like it is for, for males. So, so androgens should be like kind of the last thing we put in and also for shorter durations, but there's all these other drugs that we can utilize to, to drive progress that have good synergies together too. So um, you don't always have to drive up just androgens alone. We can put in one thing that I always thought was that growth hormone was like the ACE card and like, you don't, you don't use that to your pro. And then it like opens up the gate to utopia and you just have like rampant muscle growth. Um, it's not like that. <laughs> it's definitely uh, not as dramatic as anyone makes it out to be. However, I would have implemented it much younger if in that way I wouldn't have to use so much androgen because by far like androgen is going to be the most health deleterious male and female. Uh, so if I could use some other ways to drive that process, um, could have had like less health arrangements along the way. So utilizing like growth hormone, um, insulin, clenbuterol, injectable L-carnitine, then using health prophylactics like metformin, uh, telmosardin, all, all those to, and that goes for off-season and, and prep. Yeah, it, I'm smiling because I'm like, yeah, I'm doing the right things. Yep, exactly. <laughs> like, like, check, yeah. check, check. <laughs> check, check, doing all of those things currently. Like, it makes me so happy. Um, but yeah, this has been amazing, John. Um, we don't want to take up too much of your time, but we love to be able to speak to you. And it's so funny because Ash, Ash and I were talking about this a, a few weeks ago. It's like a year and a half ago, a year ago, we didn't know shit about fuck. And now like, we're actually able to understand the language that you're like, that you're like, we can understand this language. Um, and that is due to us, like one being exposed to your content, your, you know, J3U, all of that, but then also actually coaching and then actually bodybuilding. Um, so we're so happy to have you. Um, can you give your plug? Like, I know <laughs> most people are going to know where to find you, but where can people find you on Instagram? And is there anything that like you want to put out and market on this podcast? Yeah, no. Um, I mean, first off, thanks. Thanks for having me on and, and supporting like J3U. It's, it's a incredible time, like in the whole physique space, like the amount of information that's out there, it's incredible to learn, especially for females there. It's still not a lot of information out for females, but for what we had, like just a few years ago, it's like, wow, like it's come so far in understanding and being able to empower females and males to have understanding of what they're using and realize the health consequences, but still seek out their goals. Right. So with, yeah, with that being said, so my, my main uh, place that I'm active is Instagram. So at John Jewett three, that's where I'm at. I'm also on YouTube, John Jewett, uh, J three university is my education platform that just, uh, just trying to learn along the way and share what I do and why I, how, how to get better. And through that, I hope to make other people better along their coaching process and themselves as athletes. I've I brought in another educator, Luke Miller, who's been on my podcast and uh, now part of J3U. And 
we will be releasing the female module, which has been going on for like forever. <laughs> December, <laughs> December 13th. I don't know when this come out, but that's when, uh, you know, the female module launch, which will be the most comprehensive thing. That's probably in one place for females. Uh, that is even around. So we'll go through female, um, endocrinology, hormone disruption, birth control, uh, full PEDs, like you name it from, all non-androgens to managing side effects, then hypertrophy training for every single division, off-season contest prep, peak week, and reading labs. So it'll be like super comprehensive for females. And uh, Luke and I have have uh, put that all together. So that will be coming out soon. So I'm excited to tell that because I haven't really announced it anywhere else. So uh, yeah. <laughs> That's so good. When you got that lifetime membership. Oh, <laughs> I feel like I should pay you even more money for that content though. Like, I feel like I should like send you some Venmo money. For <laughs> That's incredible. Thank you so much for uh sneak peeking, little sneaky. Peeking. Yeah, right on. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Don. We really enjoyed this. Um, and we'll catch all of you later. All right. Thanks again, John. Peace.